1: The bill says uh, troops will go into barracks, or they will go into public houses, or they will go into unoccupied buildings. Or if all that fails, you can go ahead and put troops in private houses. And when that bill hits Parliament, Parliament actually rejects this. Uh, King George III even says, this is a horrible idea. This is, this is never going to work. Americans are never going to go for this. It's, it's, it's clearly unconstitutional.
0: That's author and historian John McCurdy talking about his new book on the Quartering Act in the American Revolution and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Museum of the American Revolution, exploring the ideas, events, and legacies of America's revolutionary beginnings. Plan your visit today. For more information, visit www.amrevmuseum.org. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we're joined by historian John McCurdy, talking about his new book, Quarters, the Accommodation of the British Army and the Coming of the American Revolution. We're pretty familiar at this point with the traditional narrative of the American Revolution, the Seven Years' War, and the policies that the British Empire took on to I suppose we could say balance the budget in the aftermath. But one of those, I think, misunderstood components of imperial policy always has been the Quartering Act. The Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, all had far-reaching consequences as part of a global imperial economy. Yet the Quartering Act is one that, as we'll see today with our discussion with John McCurdy, as he points out, Even most academic historians don't really understand. There's far more to it than what we'll find in the traditional narrative leading up to the war. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with John McCurdy. John McCurdy, thank you for joining us.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Tell us about your background.
1: Sure. Uh, I'm a professor of history at Eastern Michigan University, and that's in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Uh, For those of you, which is probably everyone who doesn't know where that is, it's somewhere between Detroit and Ann Arbor in Michigan. Uh, I was uh, born and grew up in Kansas, uh, and I attended college uh, at Knox, uh, a little college in Illinois. Uh, I received a master's degree from the University of Chicago and my Ph.D. from Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, This is my second book. uh, My first book uh, was Citizen Bachelor's. Manhood and the Creation of the United States, which came out 10 years ago. Uh, I've been at Eastern Michigan for 14 years. This will be the beginning of my 15th year teaching. Uh, I teach courses in the colonial period, the revolution, uh, gender, sexuality, uh, and some writing workshops.
0: What first drew your interest into this topic?
1: Well, I was uh, searching, I'd finished uh, the first book and I was searching for a a new topic and uh, I had a couple of false starts. I think I I talked to a number of people who write that they say you, you get this great idea for a project and then you can't find there aren't any sources. Uh, and so I decided uh, – what I, what I often tell my students who can't find a, a writing topic is to uh, go to an archive, sit in an archive, and start reading stuff until you find a, a project because it's much easier to start with sources and build out, to the, uh, build out to your questions rather than having these great questions you can never answer. Uh, so I'm about 10 miles down the road from Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, and on the campus of the University of Michigan is the uh, William L. Clements Library, which is really one of the great collections of early American history. Uh, in the United States. And so that was a lot easier for me to get to than Boston or Philadelphia. So I I went over there and started reading. Uh, I had a couple of different ideas for projects. And uh, I I, I came upon the Gage papers, Gage, the commander-in-chief of the British Army in North America from 1763 to 1775. And these have been lovingly preserved by uh, the Clements Library. Uh, they acquired these in the 30s, and they're they're beautifully bound. And it's it's a complete run. It's all the correspondence this man received, and all the correspondence he sent out. Uh, beautiful detail. It's in this gorgeous ink on this gorgeous paper. Uh, very, very very fascinating to read. So I started reading through there. Uh, and as I got started digging into it, I realized there was all this information on quartering because, as commander in chief, he was always uh, trying to find places to put his soldiers. And of course, uh, I knew enough of the American Revolution though that no one had ever written a book on the Quartering Act. And I thought, well, here's a here's here's a project for me. Uh, of course, uh, as any good professor would tell you, it's not enough to just have a good idea for a topic, uh, or uh, just the fact that there's not been a book written about it before is not really good enough reason to for, to write a book about it. Uh, so I had to think about why does it matter? Why, why would anybody want to read a book on the Quartering Act? Uh, I, I used to be mocked by a colleague, in fact, uh, who would say, that what a, uh, what, what a silly concept for a book. Uh, it, it, I didn't, it didn't take me very long of reading through the Gage Papers and some other material to realize that uh, I had been teaching the Quartering Act wrong all these years. I had gotten used to get up in front of a classroom and talk about uh, the Quartering Act forced soldiers into people's homes, and this made the Americans really angry, and hence the Revolution— uh, and I realized that that was not actually true, that the Quartering Act actually uh, did the exact opposite of that, uh, that the Quartering Act actually prohibited uh, British soldiers from entering American homes. And so I thought, well, if this is such an obvious point, uh, may- maybe this is an idea for a book. Uh, I guess the third the third thing I would just point, I would just make is uh, I, I became very fascinated with relationship between soldiers and civilians. Uh, I grew up in Leavenworth, Kansas, which is uh, next to a, a major installation, Fort Leavenworth. Uh, and so I grew up. Uh, being constantly surrounded by this interaction of of, uh, active duty officers in in the case of Leavenworth and and civilians. And so I wanted to think about this deeper, uh, think about uh, the relationships that formed between colonists and soldiers uh, in the 18th century and the coming of the American Revolution, and think about it on a deeper level than just Americans versus the British uh, soldiers, but to think sort of more broadly about uh, how soldiers and the military, or uh, rather civilians and the military, interact
0: could you talk about the importance of quarters and quartering in an 18th century army
1: sure sure uh, well I mean I, I think for any army uh, quarters uh, and quartering is important uh, you have you have soldiers uh, they need a place to sleep they need a place to store their belongings uh, they need supplies uh, food obviously but also candles uh, uh, fuel for for fires uh, basic things uh, any army needs just for the human cost of how you uh, get all these people to move along. Uh, in fact, quartering is such an ancient concept. You can find it in the Bible. Uh, there are stories uh, in in the the Hebrew scriptures that talk about uh, Gideon going into a town. Uh, and says, give my men uh, quarters, uh, the men will, the, the, the town refuses. So he, of course, he comes back and you know, slaughters the town. Uh, so this is an ancient concept. Uh, but certainly I, I think what, what makes it different in the 18th century and really with the in, the in the context of the American Revolution is that the army, the concept of the army, was changing dramatically uh, in the 18th century. Uh, most armies in the medieval period or the ancient era are, are very small, especially in England. You're talking about a, a few hundred men uh, in the 18th century. Uh, After what's called the military revolution, you have these massive armies are formed. These are standing armies, meaning they're permanent. Uh, Most of these soldiers are home. They're in England uh, waiting for battle or uh, coming back from battle. Uh, And so quartering looks very different if you're talking about a couple hundred guys uh, who are having small limited engagements versus thousands or even tens of thousands of men who have to be constantly housed and fed and supplied. Uh, and and the, the, the army becomes very concerned about this, too, because if you just have a small force and they're running off to battle, that's one thing. If you have a permanent force, thousands of men, uh, you start thinking about discipline. Uh, and so quartering becomes very key to that. How how men sleep, where they arrange their, their things, uh, is really key to making an effective fighting force. Uh, ultimately, uh, what they decide on in Europe uh, is they start putting people in barracks for that reason to enhance the discipline.
0: How did most Americans view quartering troops in the decades before the American Revolution? Obviously, much of the revolutionary generation's view and experience of war came from the Seven Years' War.
1: Sure, sure. I I, uh, I think, you know, i just just take one step back a, a touch further. I, I would say... Uh, if we if we think of the 17th century, for most Americans, quartering uh, is temporary and it's infrequent uh, and it's it's a it's a hassle, uh, but it doesn't last very long. Most wars are short. Uh, I think of King Philip's War uh, up in New England. It's a couple years. Uh, if you have fighting forces, they or there's an army, it comes to your town, it's there a few days, it moves out to the out to the front. And realistically, if you're a colonist and you're living on the frontier, or you're living on the Atlantic seaboard, uh, war, either from indigenous peoples or from European armies, is a constant threat. So, uh, in, the co- in, in the context in which every man is a is a potential soldier, every place is potentially quarters. Uh, that starts shifting uh, in the American context with the French and Indian War, or the Seven Years' War, uh, beginning uh, in the colonies in 1754, but it really ramps up in 1755. Ah, uh, the British government becomes determined, becomes concerned, or convinced rather that they uh, the Americans don't know what they're doing, and so they start sending thousands, tens of thousands of troops into the colonies. And most of these are going to Canada uh, and into the West to fight with the French and the Indian forces there. But during the winter, uh, these forces then go to the cities. They go to New York, Philadelphia, Albany, Charleston, New Jersey, uh, and they and they winter there. And they they uh, they the colonists are expected to put them up. Uh, to quarter them, to supply them, uh, to uh, provide uh, opportunities for these soldiers to then go and recruit, uh, find more soldiers, uh, and this becomes a real problem for the Americans because they're used to a couple hundred soldiers, and now they've got a couple thousand, and they're not just coming for a couple days or a couple weeks; they're coming for a couple months, uh, and so they have to. They, and they don't really have a, an answer to where to put all these soldiers. So in New Jersey, uh, they go into people's houses. Uh, In Philadelphia, they put him up in the hospital, uh, in the Pennsylvania hospital that still stands. Uh, They go into taverns in New York. Uh, But ultimately, by 1756, 1757, all of the American cities say, we have to build barracks. And so they start constructing these massive barracks that are capable of holding uh, 2,000 men or more. Uh, And and every major American city will have barracks. Uh, By the end of the war, there's enough space for 7,000 soldiers to be barracked. Uh, in the American colonies, uh, and 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 we 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 forget, uh, I think, how central these barracks once were, because of course these all get scraped off the uh, off the map after the revolution. But uh, where City Hall stands in New York today, uh, if you can imagine that right there in City Hall Park, that was that was the site of a barracks that was designed to hold two thousand men. Uh, there was you know Philadelphia, Charleston, Albany, uh, the five cities in uh, in New Jersey. Uh, only the ones in Trenton are still standing, but these were uh, the quartering becomes very different uh, because of the uh, amassing of the forces and the, uh, the construction of these barracks.
0: You talk about the theme of space throughout the book. This can be maybe um, a difficult subject for some people who aren't experienced in history to understand. Uh, so what is the significance of space and why is it such an important part of your book?
1: Sure, sure. Uh, I think I think one way to think about this is, uh, or at least for me, how I, I came to it was uh, we think of the concept of a soldier being in your house as being a real problem, right? It's unconstitutional. it's it's against your rights, It's against privacy. Uh, and so it gets to the question of well, why is that? Uh, what is it about uh, that that arrangement that we find so objectionable? And so I think if we we put put that into context, we we say okay, in the 18th century, the armies are changing; they're becoming a lot bigger, they're becoming professionalized, but also how people are thinking about spaces, as uh, specifically domestic spaces like houses, are changing. Uh, that concept of domesticity is really awakening for the first time in the 18th century. If you go into most 17th century homes in the American colonies, uh, they're not really homes as we would think of them. they all sorts of people are running in and out of them. People run businesses out of their houses. Uh, you have strangers coming in and out. Um, most taverns, most public houses are run out of someone's house. Uh, so there, there's really not that expectation of privacy. Uh, that starts emerging in the 18th century. And I think part of why it emerges is because of these these debates over quartering. Uh, and, and so that's, that's one way to start thinking about space is it's, it's what do spaces mean? Uh, what, how do, why do spaces have the meanings we attach to them? And again, the most simple one is uh, what makes a house a home? This is the old adage. But in my, in my work, I, I don't really just start. I start with the home, but I don't leave. I don't stay there uh, because I found these ideas of space interconnected. Uh, and, and a way of thinking about this is, OK, so in the 1750s, the Americans decide we don't want troops in our homes. Uh, the homes there's something sacred. There's something private about a house. We don't want troops there. So they build these barracks. OK, that's great. Except now you've got a new space. You've got this massive space, these massive barracks in the middle of your city. Well, that changes what the city means. Uh, now. The and, and these barracks are going up. on on the common, uh, in the middle of the public space. So that changes what public spaces mean. Uh, At the same time, the British Empire itself is changing as a space. Uh, It's growing, it's it's acquiring Canada, it's acquiring more colonies, India, Africa. Uh, It's becoming larger, it's becoming more connected. Uh, Americans start wondering about this. Uh, They start saying, well, what does this mean for us and our place in the empire? Uh, as the barracks start changing cities, Americans start saying, well, why are troops in our cities? Why are troops in New York? Why aren't they out in Detroit uh, or out in Illinois? Why aren't they someplace – or Quebec? Why aren't they someplace where non-English-speaking, uh, non-Protestant people live? Uh, and, and ultimately these these become connected because uh, there's this debate uh, about Do, the, do the, is, is, is the space uh, that becomes the United States, should this be separated out of the empire? Uh, I, I hope I'm <laughs> making that making that somewhat approachable or somewhat understandable. Uh, that's at least how I, I've been thinking about space within this project.
0: Could you detail the events that led to the Quartering Act?
1: Sure, sure. Here, sure. uh, see, so uh, during the Seven Years' War, of course, you have uh, tens of thousands of British troops arriving in American soil. Uh, and there is a decision made at the end of the war. The war formally comes to an end in 1763, and there is a decision of what do we do with these troops. And the British government decides to leave 15 regiments uh, in North America. Fifteen regiments would be somewhere in the neighborhood of 7,000 soldiers, uh, give or take. Um, and they, they decide to do this because they're nervous. The empires become a lot larger. Of course, they've acquired Canada, Florida, uh, all of the land— Uh, to the Mississippi River, and they're nervous about these people, uh, these new colonists, as it were. So they decide to leave troops there. Uh, Well, they they leave some troops in New York and Albany as well. Most go out to Detroit and Quebec and Florida, but they leave some in New York City and some in Albany. And the British Army expects the American colonists to continue to quarter these uh, troops as if it was wartime. And Americans in Albany and New York say, well, (laughs) that's that's not how this works. Uh, We will supply soldiers when they're doing something for us, like defending us in an act of war. But the war is over. Why are you still here? Uh, And so it's at this point – it's in late 1764 uh, that General Gage, the commander-in-chief of the British forces, decides there needs to be a law uh, because there is nothing to stop the American colonists from saying, uh, we're not going to supply your troops. Uh, We don't have to keep up the barracks. Um, We don't care. And so Gage has this idea. He he, he limbs out a a very simple version, uh, sends it to parliament. Uh, to say, can can you write a law that will force the Americans to uh, re- uh, supply barracks, uh, keep them in, in, in and yeah, keep them up? Uh, so this goes off to Parliament. Uh, Parliament is consumed with other things. It's early 1765. By the by, the time Gage's ideas arrive, uh, and uh, Parliament is 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 sort of consumed with how are you going to get Ameri- how are they going to get Americans to pay for taxes? Uh, this war they've just finished is a huge expenditure. Uh, but anyway, so they don't, they don't put a lot of thought into the, the quartering act and when the bill originally arrives or the idea for the bill originally arrives and as it's originally introduced to parliament, the bill says uh, troops will go into barracks or they will go into public houses or they will go into unoccupied buildings or if all that fails, you can go ahead and put troops in private houses. And when that bill hits Parliament, Parliament actually rejects this. Uh, King George III even says this is a horrible idea. This is this is never going to work. Americans are never going to go for this. It's 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 clearly unconstitutional, uh, and it's it's actually because of some of the work of Benjamin Franklin, who's in London at that time as an agent uh, for for the colony of Pennsylvania, uh, manipulates the bill, changes the bill, rewrites the bill, sends it back to Parliament, and basically what Franklin and some others uh, have come up with is a deal. They work out a deal. They say okay. The Americans will supply barracks. They will ha- they will come up with supplies, carriages, things like that that the soldiers need. However, uh, the Quartering Act will not allow quartering of troops in private houses. And that is, that is the deal they come up with. Uh, and that is the f- state in which it passes Parliament uh, in uh, 1765.
0: The political spectrum in America during the Revolution is diverse. There's a right and a left. Uh, what were some of the reactions to the Quartering Act when it was passed?
1: Sure, sure. No, it, it, it's very controversial. Uh, so the American responses are, are quite diverse. Um, I, I think one of the – we assume, thinking, or at least maybe I'll just say I assumed, uh, having, having known more about the, the Stamp Act and, and the Townsend Act and the T-Act, is, is we think of the American colonists as being very opposed to these parliamentary laws. But as I got into the, the, the research, I discovered that of the 13 colonies, seven actually come up with money – Under the idea of the Quartering Act, either explicitly or implicitly, they are funding soldiers, they are supplying soldiers, British soldiers, uh, and providing barracks for them in seven of the 13 colonies, as well as the Bahamas and Bermuda. Uh, and, so, and, and so there's a whole range of responses. Pennsylvania has no objection to the Quartering Act. It simply passes it. It says fine. And it appropriates, I came up with, it's uh, over 16,000 pounds in Pennsylvania currency is appropriated by the Pennsylvania legislature uh, between 1766 and 1772. There's ne- it's never, never controversial. Many of the colonies try to play games. Uh, New Jersey and South Carolina are really good at this. They say, well, we'll pay for some things that are mandated in the Quartering Act, but we won't pay for all things things. Uh, in particular, they don't want to pay for alcohol. Uh, they, the idea that you're getting soldiers uh, something that are going to get them drunk, that then they'll come and uh, harass your civilians, uh, they, they don't want to deal with that. Uh, New York is probably the most uh, stringent, uh, the most strident in its uh, refusal to abide by the Quartering Act. And in part, New York is, is the biggest uh, – has, has the biggest burden of, of British soldiers because the command center is in New York City. There's always a regiment in New York, and, and most of the time there's one in, in Albany as well. Uh, so it's a, it's a constant expense. It's a constant harassment. And New York tries to object. They say we're not going to uh, play by the rules of the Quartering Act. We'll give you some money, but we're not going to give you the supplies you want. And of course, this will result in the New York Restraining Act of 1767, whereby Parliament says, if New York does not abide by the Quartering Act, if it does not the, follow the letter of the law, we will not allow the New York legislature to meet, to pass any law, unless that law is to abide by the Quartering Act. And so this is really draconian, one of the most draconian responses from Parliament of, of an American response uh, in the, in the lead-up to the American Revolution. The other thing I learned in, in working on this, this, this project is uh, is not just the 13 American colonies that become the United States that are uh, in, uh, ensnared by the Quartering Act. Uh, the uh, General Gage wants to enforce the Quartering Act in Canada. Uh, he wants to uh, – there's ideas of trying to enforce it in Illinois and in Florida. I mean it's all, all places. You know, there are soldiers all over these places. Uh, make the civilians pay for them. Uh, the problem is most of these places don't have any money. Uh, they've been ravaged by the war. They weren't the very rich colonies. They're, they're, they're nothing compared to like a Virginia and a Massachusetts, places that had tons of money. Uh, these are very poor places. Uh, these other colonies outside of the original 13, they don't have assemblies. So the way the Quartering Act works is you have to go to a colonial assembly and ask for money. Well, what if there's no colonial assembly to ask for money from? Who, who appropriates the money? Uh, and then there's no barracks, uh, and this becomes a real problem. Uh, Because in Quebec, in Florida, out in Illinois, uh, here in Michigan, uh, soldiers actually end up in people's houses uh, in direct violation or what should have been direct violation of the Quartering Act. And for me, I always find this so interesting uh, because I think the irony of misremembering the Quartering Act as being about putting troops into homes of Americans. And this leads to the American Revolution is actually the quartering act doesn't put troops into homes in America or what becomes the United States. Rather, it does put troops into houses in places like Canada and Florida and Illinois, places that do not uh, uh, revolt against the British government.
0: Quartering of soldiers transforms American cities and private homes. You point this out in your book. Uh, How so?
1: Sure. Sure. Uh, I think, I think cities is probably where we see it, uh, very clearly. Uh, again, it's a huge change, uh, when you're putting, thinking about putting barracks in the middle of town, uh, again, in, to go back to the example of New York, uh, uh, we think of City Hall. It's it's you know in City Hall Park. It's pretty pretty far down in Manhattan. But uh, at the time, that was the northern boundary of of the city, and it was the common. Uh, it was where you would uh, soldiers would muster uh, in the militia. It's where uh, George Whitfield would give uh, famous sermons, things like that. Uh, so to put the barracks there really changes the flavor of the city. It's taking public land uh, and changing the city. And and I and I think the city. I, I, the thing I was really fascinated by in working on this is I was expecting, okay, soldiers show up, Americans are going to be angry. No, they're not angry. Uh, for the most part, they, they make do. Uh, the soldiers, cities are very diverse places, they're very complicated places, even in the colonial period where a city's, you know, a big city is 15,000 people. Uh, and, this, and, and the people go along to get along. Uh, and the soldiers and the colonists, uh, they celebrate the king's birthday together. Uh, They interact mostly. uh, There's not a conflict there. Uh, I think one of my favorite stories is uh, uh, they open a theater in New York. This is the burgeoning Broadway district of New York City. They open a theater in 1767, and uh, Gage in particular is worried that a mob will come and tear down the theater, uh, that this will be seen as as contrary to the, the good morals of the city. And so Gage sends soldiers uh, from the regiment to protect the, the theater, and the, and the performance goes on. I mean, in some sense, the British Army is, is underwriting the creation of Broadway, uh, as we know it. Uh, and when, when the troops, of course, they do get drunk, they do desert. They, they're, they're, they're young men, they get in all sorts of trouble. Uh, and I found, for the most part, authorities, uh, both civilian and the military authorities, would work together to corral the troops and, and to keep uh, relations relatively placid. This all changes in Boston. Uh, Boston is the one exception to the rule. Philadelphia, New York, Charleston, Albany, New Jersey cities. Uh, there's not a lot of conflict. When four regiments are sent to Boston in 1768, this changes everything. The people of Boston do not accept the soldiers. They have no interest in in connecting with them. They're not interested in working civilian to military authorities to keep the peace. Uh, there's it's a, it's a long tense period beginning in the fall of 1768. And, of course, being punctuated uh, with the Boston Massacre in March of 1770. And when that happens, and even before this happens, but Americans start having this conversation of why do we have soldiers in a city? Don't you know soldiers are just going to rape your wives and your daughters and steal your things? Uh, And so after the Boston Massacre happens, there's a new discourse. There's a new dialogue that emerges where people start saying, why do we have soldiers in cities? Maybe soldiers shouldn't be here. They should be out in the frontier. I think that's one way of thinking about cities. Uh, for houses, and I can be a much briefer uh, on the point of houses, uh, I, I've talked a lot about houses. I, 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 the point I would add would, would just be, in, in my research, I, I'm pretty convinced that the Quartering Act is the first and only time where Parliament basically recognizes a right to privacy, uh, that the American colonists have the right to not have soldiers in their home, to not have to quarter them in the places where they live. Uh, that is tacitly Uh, Parliament recognizing there's a right to privacy. And and of course, we know that that begins in the 1760s. But up until today, of course, Americans jealously guard that that right to privacy within their own homes.
0: You use a term in your book, you label as military geography. And you talk about how the military geography of the revolution has changed the American view of the whole subject, even to the 21st century. Uh, Talk about the concept of military geography.
1: Sure, sure. Uh, the concept, and I and I use this term, uh, military geography, and I, I like, like, like all good uh, uh, scholars, I suppose, a seal. Uh, so this comes from Rachel Woodward and Colin Flint. These are geographers, and basically, what they're asking about is is the the way of simplifying the concept of military geography is just to say, uh, where 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 do sol- where can soldiers go and where can't they go. Um, Again, going back to that notion of houses, like soldiers can't go in your house because it's it's understood as not being a military space. Uh, But they can go to barracks. They can go to bases. They can go to forts. Uh, They can walk down the street. Uh, These aren't. So it's that's what military geography is—is is where do we imagine soldiers are allowed to go versus where they're not, uh, and and I think you can expand that out. We can start talking about places of war versus places of peace, and 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 of course, as as scholars have said, like uh, men like Der- and scholars like rather like Derek Gregory, uh, this is a fiction. Uh, of course, we live in the era of nuclear weapons and uh, uh, cyber terrorism uh, and terrorism. Uh, the, and, and men like Gregory have said, we live in the, in the moment of the everywhere war, right? No place is safe. Uh, you can be attacked in your home, right, is, is the great fear. My point is that uh, with the book and what, what I got – came away from this in thinking about quartering uh, is that the Quartering Act, uh, that period from the passage of the law in 1765 up until the beginning of the American Revolution in 1775, is that this was a moment when Americans are debating where do soldiers go? Uh, what places in this – what becomes a country uh, should be part of military geography uh, and what what places should be off limits to that? Uh, and, and again, going back to before 1756, before the Seven Years' War, troops could go literally anywhere. Uh, most soldiers would go into your house. It wasn't thought of as a weird thing that this changes from the mid-1750s up to the 1770s. Uh, And I think the other point that's key here is this is not just about British soldiers. We can say, okay, of course, Americans are outraged that there are redcoats in their houses. Uh, They've just murdered their their, their, uh, civilians after the Boston massacre. How could they not be angry? But I think the lasting legacy of the debate over quartering is that American troops? It's not like once the United States formed as a country that suddenly uh, Americans started welcoming U.S. troops into their homes, or started welcoming U.S. troops um, uh, marching in formation down the middle of uh, down the center of uh, Broadway. Uh, that 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 sense of cities should be protected, cities are places of peace, houses are places that are not part of military geography. That is an idea that has really transcended the last two centuries. Um, and, and I guess the, the, the other point I would just make with this is uh, uh, a lot of people, of course, will want to talk about quarters or where the Quartering Act will say, well, ultimately, this sends us up with the Third Amendment. Uh, the amendment which says uh, uh, there shall be soldiers on our quarter in your house uh, unless a law is based, passed by Congress. Um, so it makes it a bit of a weak amendment. Um, and, and, the, and the Third Amendment is an interesting case uh, or an interesting piece of the Constitution. It never becomes part of a, a Supreme Court. It's never been uh, subject to a Supreme Court decision. Uh, But uh, for me, it's so interesting. It's about thinking about that there are spaces. The Third Amendment is trying to write into the Constitution some of these ideas that there are certain places that are protected against military intrusion, against soldiers, against the state. Uh, And famously, uh, it's in 1965 when the Supreme Court for the first time issues a ruling, and this is the ruling in Griswold v. Connecticut, um, and this has to do with birth control. Uh, but this is the first time that the Supreme Court will recognize a right to privacy, uh, and, of course, this has all sorts of implications and has had so for the last 50 years. Uh, but in making that decision, the Supreme Court says, well, no, nowhere in the Constitution is there, is there, is there the word privacy or right to privacy. But if we look at the Third Amendment and we think about its history and the Fourth as well— uh, clearly the founders were intending that the house was a was space was off limits. That there was there was an expectation of privacy that, that comes there. So again, these these ideas we have, in some sense, the rights we have, uh, in our most uh, private uh, places, uh, all stem from this this debate over quartering.
0: John McCurdy, thank you for joining us. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin MacLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia.